everybody. Welcome to the No Film School podcast for the week of August 6th, 2021. I'm Charles Hayne. I write for No Film School. I'm here with George Edelman, editor-in-chief of No Film School. Hello. I'm here with Todd Blankenship, writer and editor at No Film School. Hey, how's it going? And I'm here with filmmaker and writer and podcaster, Kath Tolentino. Hello. This week, we're going to be talking about the lawsuit everyone is talking about, ScarJo suing Disney. We are going to be talking about Amanda Knox and the burdens filmmakers have for research and talking to sources. We are going to be talking about getting hired off of a deep fake. All that and a couple of tech news stories about black magic and Adobe this week on the No Film School podcast. All right, so our top story this week, Scarlett Johansson, known on the internet as ScarJo, which is not the smoothest of the nicknames. Like an R and a J in the middle there against each other doesn't really roll off my tongue, but I have never said it aloud before. ScarJo <laughs> is suing Disney over unpaid monies from her contract for Black Widow. It is There's a lot of ins and outs on this one, but it's, it seems pretty clear. Like, first off, the contract is not published. So... You know, whenever these lawsuits happen, it's like you didn't fall through the contract, but I do not believe that the contract is currently public. So one side saying what's in the contract, the other side saying what's in the contract. I'm inclined to believe Scarlett Johansson and what they're publicly saying was in the contract in this particular dispute. But basically, Black Widow was guaranteed a theatrical release, and that was supposed to come with a bonus from ticket sales that based on viewership, they estimate would have been like $50 million. She got $20 million up front and then bonus back end. Because of the pandemic, Disney decided to only release it on Disney Plus with their like premium access $30 upgrade payment, which she was still going to get a chunk of. But her contract specifically said guaranteed theatrical release. And so based on that, we can assume that they she asked for the money and was rebuffed. Like you usually don't start with the lawsuit unless you're feeling really aggressive. But it has reached the point of lawsuit where she is suing Disney over unpaid funds, which is a like it's a good move for the worker because she's in a she's in a position where she is done with that story arc with Black Widow. So she actually has, you know, the power of a bunch of other studios will continue hiring her if they decide they don't like her anymore. And she is standing up for contract enforcement, which is good. Like we put a lot of work into contracts in order to make them fair to the worker. And she's like, no, no, I was owed my money. And like, yes, she has plenty of money already, but like, this was the deal. They owe her the money. They should pay it. It's especially interesting because WB a year ago went through a similar thing when they moved all of their projects over to streaming, a bunch of creatives were pissed, but then they went back and talked to all the creatives and reworked all the deals. This is a situation where Disney is unilaterally making a decision and then not working with their creative partners to make sure those deals still honor the intent of the previous contract. Because I guarantee if Disney had made this right privately, like where she was getting a substantial chunk or some sort of bonus payment based on the streaming, it would never have reached this point. Disney shot back with a public statement that sort of shamed her about COVID. Like in these COVID times, uh, in a way that I was like, that seems unnecessary. And also that's where we know she made 20 million is Disney's counterstatement, which seems a little bit like you already got your 20 million shut up. And then amazingly, this just happened. Brian Lord, the current head or co-head of CAA, which is, you know, the major agency that reps ScarJo, just put out a very pro ScarJo, we have every right to sue you, you should just pay us statement, which is like, you're not always going to get the head of your agency to come out publicly and back everything you do. And that was a that was a good move. I would say, yeah, thanks for unloading all of it. There's a lot to it. I would say that the the other thing that's happened in the wake of the initial lawsuit is that a lot of stars of these streaming of these streamers have come forward and suggested they're considering this against Disney. Emma Stone from Emma Cruella. Stone. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Emma Stone of Cruella. I believe Dwayne the Rock Johnson was asked if he was going to do it after Jungle Cruise this last weekend. I don't know if he is, but I think that it's a really unique circumstance obviously, in history where there was one expectation with a lot of these tentpoles and the game changed. And I don't know. I mean, do you guys think, what does everybody think? Does, do you, I mean, do you think to me, it's, the, whole, the whole thing is like, it's, it's, it's a really weird confluence of a bunch of different things, I think. It's like, 
you have the theaters struggling and obviously that whole flavor of it. And then obviously a lot of these contracts were probably done well before the pandemic. So it's, I don't know, it's just kind of this interesting thing where like you, there's, there's a lot of added sort of flavors to the situation that might not have been there if this, con- you know, I don't know if you just amend the contracts midway through or something like that. I, you know, I, I don't know. It's just a weird sort of For complex sure. situation. And the first thing that I thought when this all started was like, oh man, there's probably going to be like a hundred more of these stories coming out because there's a lot of actors that have had a lot of contracts signed through, you know, probably before the pandemic, like you said, uh, Emma Stone. And uh, I didn't know about the rock one. That's pretty crazy. But does the contract actually express like an estimated amount that they could hope to make based on theatrical? Like, where is that expectation coming from? Is it contracted or is it based on like what they've received in the past? Like, do we know about this? It's based on a percentage of per ticket sales. So they're getting like gross. So like the ticket reported percentages. And so the 50 million estimate, I believe, is an after-the-fact estimate based on how the movie ended up actually doing, not an estimate that was in the contract. But the contract specifies things like, all right, you're going to get, you know, the contract will say things like, this is guaranteed to do a theatrical. We're not going to move it to streaming. And that's been around forever because, you know, you didn't want to do, you know, the big stars wouldn't want to do the home video sequel in the 80s or 90s, right? So like forever, it's been a, like a guaranteed theatrical has been a part of a deal to get a big star to do a project. You're definitely going to get a theatrical. We're not going to move this later, that kind of thing. Got it. And then the estimates come after the fact. You know what's funny about that? And maybe I'm, maybe being a little older is the only reason I care about this. But I really do feel like this, this ties in with another unrelated thing. But when I see that ScarJo or The Rock or any of these movies, when I find out that they are available simultaneously on streaming, it makes them all feel a little like jankier to me immediately. And it's sort of like when I see like a major star like does an ad, which used to be a total no-no. They would never do ads that ran here. They would do them that like in Japan or something because they just didn't want... I don't know why. There are tons of... It used to be you find movie stars in tons of commercials in Japan or other countries, but not here. It just feels like this weird thing that we've like crossed that Rubicon where now like simultaneous release is fine and like it doesn't... like. It just feels so unblockbustery, and so like the whole straight to video concept. And I do wonder if, on some level, they don't the stars just don't really like it, or if it's really just money. I also feel like, yeah, I think a lot of people probably still share your feeling, George, about streaming being kind of like, eh, just like not doesn't doesn't have the same gravitas as a, as a, seeing a movie in a theater. But I just feel like we need to talk about the absurdity of this situation. Like we haven't talked about this yet. I mean, we spend so many episodes here at No Film School talking about how little PAs still get paid. You know, they're still making what PAs made in like the 1980s. And then you also have people who are suing studios because they didn't make as much money as they thought they were going to make, but they're still making at least $20 million. Like not to say that Scarlett Johansson is a bad person for doing this, but it's just such an absurd situation. Right. Hmm. Well, well, I'll scale it. I mean, I agree. That's ridiculous. It is like the people at the bottom of the ladder need to be paid much better. And Disney can clearly afford it. And like, I totally agree with that statement, but I'll scale it down a little bit and say that I actually think this Scarlett Johansson thing is getting a lot of publicity because she's famous and and because it's a big number, but it's actually really not that uncommon. I remember one point I had to take some legal action against a production company and I was at like a breakfast meeting with a buddy of mine who's a writer and a couple other like industry folks. And he was like, and I was like all nervous about having to get a lawyer. And he was like, are you kidding me? Get a lawyer. Like, this is how this works. Like I'm currently developing a show and my lawyers are suing that same network's lawyers over non-paid residuals from a previous show. We're still developing a new show together. I'm still going to work with them. I still like the creative executives. My lawyers fight their lawyers. I don't worry about it. I do creative work with them. So like, and he's just a working writer. Like that guy is not like mega, mega rich. I don't, and I'm not endorsing it. I'm not saying that's a good situation. I'm not like, I don't think that's the way it should be. I think people should put more good faith effort into following their contracts without having to be sued. Like, I'm very disappointed that that's the way it is. But like, 
Like this same situation in microcosm plays out for a wide variety of people who for whom the number isn't in the tens of millions of dollars, but also for like the hundreds of thousands or the tens of thousands. And so it is like a bigger problem that like simultaneously RPA and lower uh, lower end of the totem pole wages are so low. And there's this like huge non-payment problem, which like everybody's been making jokes about for like 50 years, where it's like how difficult it is to actually see residual money. That makes it, I wish it didn't have to get to lawsuits. I mean, union power is one of the ways that we improve the lower end pay. And I think it's also one of the ways we improve residual pay. Yeah, but maybe you're right. Maybe it is just America. You know, maybe we're just a litigious. That's just how we do things. This is how we solve problems. No hard feelings, Disney. Yeah, I mean, the last thing I'll just throw in though on that is that while I agree, there's so many people who need that 20 mil more or whatever extra mil she's going to get. Disney, it's kind of like there is a part of me that that sides with the star over the studio sometimes because it's like, I, I mean, Disney's going to be fine. <laughs> like, like, so it more seems to me like Studios like Disney are trying to use IP and intellectual property and characters like Black Widow to replace some of the clout of the star that they are beholden to. And the idea will probably be that they can do things like recast a Black Widow or get end up with like 10 Spider-Mens or Batman and use them at various times and dilute the the influence one star has in negotiation, et cetera, et cetera. I don't know if it'll work because I think star power still means a lot. But anyway, I think that there is this mentality from the star that's like, I'm not going to just let Disney, this massive, massive company with all this money, take it, take the advantage of my stardom, you know? Well, and I, I just like the, the, the whole, like the, the Disney clapback that they did was really kind of funny to me where they were like, how dare you challenge us in these times of COVID? Um, and <laughs> I was just like, like no, nobody in the planet knows more about profiting off of that situation than Disney right now, I feel like. So it was just like, I, I love how like the entire internet was just like, nope, that's not, that's not a thing. That's not going to work at all. <laughs> Yeah, it's like in sports sometimes billionaire owners will cry poverty and be like, We're not we overpay these athletes as it is. It's like, well, nobody really cares about you, billionaire owner. You're fine. Like you you know, you're you're being paid by fans for overpriced tickets and hot dogs or whatever. And the star has like limited earning years and they're being taxed really high on whatever they make. And, you know, like they are the reason people care. So I think that 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 correlation comes to mind for me, where it's just like Disney saying, like, it's been so tough. It's been so hard for us. Why why would you try to make it worse, ScarJo? And uh, to me, you know, uh, like another thing is like, I I don't know. For me personally, anything that in any sort of way, whether directly or indirectly sort of protects the theatrical movie going experience, whether it be, you know, an actress suing Disney over simultaneous releases, like I'm, I, I don't know. I'm just going to kind of default to for it a little bit, uh, kind of like what you were saying, George, where it's just like, I don't know. Um, I, I'm not going to necessarily side with the, you know, the, one of the biggest corporations in the entire world when, you know, it's the, the, the theater industry is struggling. And, and if, I don't know, I, it's not like I'm saying that I want, you know, everyone to start suing the streaming or, you know, right. Disney and all that sort, sort of situation. It's just like, I, I'm just going to default to like, yeah, let's, uh, I don't know, let's keep the theaters alive with, you know, not doing the simultaneous release thing. But that's kind of my stance on all that. What's well, also like, to go back to sort of Kath's point before about people being underpaid at every level of the industry, the biggest form of theft in North America right now is wage theft. The amount of wage theft right. so far outweighs burglary. It is, <laughs> it's just ridiculous. Like, you know, if the police spent the time on wage theft, you know, the number of people who aren't getting paid overtime, it's it's criminal. And like, this is wage theft. Like, you know, the it's it's hard when we get to bigger numbers to remember the difference between millions and billions. But like, you know, Scarlett Johansson, if she got another 50 million after taxes and agents and managers and lawyers, that's another 20 million. And like, that is like a, is like a drop in a bucket to the multi-billion dollar income that is Disney. And so it's easy to see that and be like, well, that's so much. But I'm like, well, 
we should probably be fighting against wage theft at every level on every front we can at all times because wage theft is like the absolute biggest thing that is the biggest criminal activity we have right now. And these are wages that she's owed for her labor. And she is in a unique, this kind of like what happens with unions often. Like she's uniquely powerful, but her fight could and probably won't, but in theory should, impact the lower level fight. Like against it being won't, mistreated. <laughs> yeah, it won't. <laughs> no, I, know, it won't. I know it won't. It but in theory, in theory, no, you're right. It won't. I think though, I, I do want to say something, Todd brought up though about the theater thing i have i think benefited as a parent during the covid era from the simultaneous release a lot because you can be like hey it's the new movie and we can watch it and even if i'm paying like a 20 dollar rental premium whatever disney's doing it's less than going to the movies and it's you know the new thing oh 100 i wish they weren't doing it though because even though i've benefited from it I want them to have to, like, I, I mean, and I'm not going to theaters at the moment, like with kids, certainly. But like, I, I wish that <laughs> I, I want the theater experience so much to be preserved that it upsets me and worries me a little bit that this transition is taking place sort of seamlessly. <laughs> no, it's, it's like it's like getting your meals delivered to your door. You, you, you don't want to do it. You shouldn't do it. But it is very, very enticing to go ahead and do that. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, I don't go to the grocery store very much anymore. And there's a part of me that's kind of like, I guess that model is maybe going to vanish in a lot of ways. But I think that, yeah, I, I wish people were going to theaters. I wish we were forced to go to theaters. I canceled my plans and refunded to see uh, certain things in theaters and and just watch them stream. And that's kind of a downer. I saw I Black Widow in the theater. It was great. I was one of oh, yeah, five you people liked there. It. Yeah, that's that's also <laughs> interesting. You actually liked Black Widow. I loved Black Widow. thought it was fantastic. I also still shop in the grocery store every single week. So I don't know. I think there's people like us. Yeah, I'm in the grocery store like four times a week. I don't know, I don't know how you're not. Like literally <laughs> the days I don't go to the grocery store. But I'm a New Yorker who's on my bike all the time. So it's a really easy stop. Yeah. It would be different if it was automobile based. But yeah, I definitely... I'm like flabbergasted to hear what life is like if you're not in the grocery store all the time. Um, I like know all the checkout people in the grocery. Uh, all right, we should be moving on to our second story this week. Another big theatrical release that's getting a theatrical release, Stillwater from Tom McCarthy. If you don't know Tom McCarthy, he is a uh, writer-director, famous for many things, movies like Win Win and The Visitor. And if you haven't seen it, The Station Agent is like the peak of like what a good quirky indie from 2000 three could be like it was like everything it like it's so good the station agent it's like peter dinklage and bobby cannavale and uh i'm forgetting um the actress who is with them right now but someone else will remind me and i'll feel bad until then it's a great movie it totally he's also an oscar winner for spot patricia clarkson yep uh, Patricia Clarkson, thank you. And he apparently, and I don't remember if this is true, he directed, there was an original pilot to Game of Thrones, only half of the footage of which ended up in the actual pilot of Game of Thrones. And apparently he directed that, but I don't actually know if that's true or if I'm half remembering something from the internet. Anyway, his new movie, Stillwater. It's really common to reshoot the pilot. If you want a, like a, an amazing class in screenwriting, go rewatch the first pilot to 30 Rock, which is available on illegal places. And like about half of that footage is in the actual 30 Rock pilot. And it's amazing what they decided to change. You learn so much about like how to assemble a good pilot by like who they decided to recast and who they kept. It's like really fascinating. I've never seen the original pilot for Game of Thrones. For nerds, the old school was Star Trek. It was a double pilot and it had not been done much at the time. But anyway, we don't need to. Sorry, really quick, because this is actually, I find this very interesting. So they shoot the pilot to get the the series greenlit and then once it's greenlit they'll reshoot it no in 30 rocks case they like they shot the pilot they were like let's redo half of it and then if we like what we redo with the half of it like she had enough of a relationship at nbc and and the executives that they reshot half of it and then used that and i believe it was only after that that they actually got the series pickup game of thrones i don't know I don't exactly, I don't know enough about the Game of Thrones story to know. And I could be wrong on the 30 Rock story, but it was a, it was a major retool in 30 Rock. They recast like half the parts. They changed things quite seriously. And then you watch the actual pilot and you're like, oh, like those were good notes. 
like some of the parts they recast and they reconfigured. I'm like, oh, you those two characters were way too similar before. And now you've put this other person in the role and there's a much better conflict that'll sustain over the years. And you're like, it was Whoa. it was good decisions. It was Whoa. like you can see the mechanics of TV like there. A, I didn't know you could get like a contingent green light or that you could like iterate I mean, I'm, on a pilot that's already shot. That's really interesting. I mean, this is Tina Fey. I don't know that yeah. everyone gets that. I think that's the rest it's of us. It's interesting though, because the, the story with the Star Trek one, the history of it, they shot a pilot for NBC and they had a ton of notes and they were like, let's try again. We're not going to air it. Let's try again. I mean, you got to change this, this, and this, recast this and that. And then they did, and then they re-aired, and that was the one that actually was on TV and launched the series. And then nobody knew or saw that pilot for like three decades, I think. It aired in the 80s, the original pilot, which a lot of people saw and were like, oh, that's really interesting and different. And and it's kind of fascinating as an example from a much older era of television, how much things had to change. And that was Lucille Ball, right? Yeah, she, that's also weird. She was the what? executive behind Star Trek. <laughs> the main executive. She owned the lot they shot it on. Yes. What? Yeah. yeah really no, weird. She, she likes her some sci-fi. You know. Yeah. Like the entire invention of modern television syndication was her and her husband. Like they Desi largely, Lou. yeah, yeah, Desilu largely invented the syndication model that created modern TV or yeah, our the husband and wife creative team. Anyway, back so to much. our specific subject today, which is Stillwater. Stillwater, Stillwater. is <laughs> loosely inspired by the Amanda Knox story. And it's not on the poster, but it's coming up a lot in the press, right? In the press, Matt Damon's mentioning it in the Vanity Fair article. Tom McCarthy's talking about being inspired by the Amanda Knox story, trying to imagine what it's like to be in the Amanda Knox story. I'm not going to summarize the Amanda Knox story in great d- detail right now, but if you don't know it, you should read about it. It's a horrible story in which a American exchange student was in Italy. Someone got murdered. People decided to blame her for the murder. It is pretty conclusive that she was not involved in any way, but she spent like eight years stuck in Italy, three years in jail. Over this murder, she was 0% involved in. She's an attractive person, so it got a lot more attention because she is attractive. The nickname was Foxy Noxy. She's also apparently, from all of the interviews and press I've read about her lately, a very nice person who is a little bit introverted and was not really ready to be famous. But she's done a really good job in years since of navigating that fame. She wrote a book to pay off our legal fees. Apparently, all $4 million from the book went to legal fees. And now has a podcast and is very much navigating being an unavoidably public person. She spent a couple of years trying not to be a public person. But you, when you are as famous as she became because of this court case, you really can't go be a normal person anymore. Also because so many people think, still think that she did it. Like, even yeah. though it was disproven, like, I feel like it's a small percentage of the global community that, like, realizes that. Yeah. Which is an which important is, uh, note. Because it's not well, just that she's famous. She's, like, famous for having brutally killed someone. And then, like, the details around that were like, oh, and they were having crazy kinky sex, and they were really into drugs. And she was just this, like you know, painted as being this like scary person. And she's not. She's just a normal person. Isn't she a journalist now? I think she... She has a podcast and I think she does some writing and... But I mean, it's, it's again a reminder of these big salacious stories that get a lot of attention when the, when the truth comes out years later, it often gets less attention. Like, the trial will be on the front page for years and that will get our attention. And then four years later, people will be like, oh, but that person's innocent. And that will get like one thing on the second page. It's really disappointing. So Stillwater's inspired by that story, but it's set in France, not Italy. Apparently both of Amanda Knox's parents worked together as a couple really hard to free her and were, were there fighting in Italy together. This story focuses on just Matt Damon, a single dude. Apparently the couple is split up in this story and he's working really hard to free his daughter who he feels like is unjustly jailed in France. So I really love Tom McCarthy's movies. I haven't seen Stillwater yet, but Amanda Knox put out a long thread on Twitter and where she argued where she was like, guys, like I'm around. Like you, you talk a lot about like trying to put yourself in my shoes, trying to figure out what my experience is like, all of that. You're using my name a lot in your marketing experience in Vanity Fair, but none of you have ever reached out to me until you started reaching out to me to like be on your podcast and stuff to talk about the launch of the movie. But like, I wasn't involved in any of this. And like, it brings up so many interesting questions for me. Like there's no legal obligation. You can make a movie. If you don't use Amanda Knox's name, you can just do it. But like, this is a person who's alive. This is a person who's not bad. Like, if you want to go make a movie about some asshole con man, do it. Like, fine. Like, whatever. Like, somebody who grifted or what? Like, I don't worry about their feelings too much. But, like, 
This is a, a human being who's been very public about how complicated she feels about being a public person who is available and around. And you're Tom McCarthy. Your last movie was Spotlight, which won the Oscar. Like, she'll probably return your phone call or Matt Damon or whatever. Like, what are our obligations as filmmakers and research? Like, how much is it? Like, where does all that lie? I think is a really interesting point. And she made a lot of great arguments, I thought. I'll jump in because I I saw it. I talked to Tom McCarthy. He was on the podcast a couple episodes ago. And it was really cool because he's awesome. And I did not think about, this is weird. I went into Stillwater not knowing what the plot was really. And I did not think about Amanda Knox until I saw the tweet thread. And then I thought, oh yeah. And then somebody else I knew who I was texting with, because I was like, you got to see Stillwater. It's awesome when it comes out. And the friend texting is like, isn't it just the Amanda Knox story? And I was like, ah, it's really not. And I didn't even say that because of the tweet thread. I was just like, I didn't even think about it when I was watching it. Now, obviously, it's very, it's, it's, it's definitely based on that. It's a similar incident, but it's sort of like a, it's an inflection point from which a story grows that has to do with so many other things. And it's sort of like when it comes to things like text and subtext, it's just the subtext of Stillwater is all about you know, what it means to be an American, how we are viewed abroad, how, what, how, what we think of our justice system. I thought more about things like crime and punishment and the stranger because it's French and there's the Algerian aspect and there's stuff about race and othering people and there's stuff about sexual identity and, and there's so much in fatherhood and addiction. There are these so many powerful themes in the movie that I didn't really think about in Amanda Knox until it came up. But she's right. I mean, she is a person who lived this. It is clearly the point of inspiration that that the story takes off from and then becomes a metaphor for all these other things. And I do think that because McCarthy has a relationship to journalism, it sort of make, would have made sense. It's sort of surprising that they didn't. Maybe they didn't for legal reasons. I don't know all the details. Like maybe they decided like if we involve her, then it has to become her story. And then that's a whole other issue. And we don't want that. I don't really know. But I can only say from my experience of experiencing the film that it didn't occur to me until it was pointed out. Because, and I I, I mean, I say this carefully because I don't want to discount the human experience that she has, which is like, wow, you like expose, once again, I'm being utilized for this stuff and it's not fair and it puts me in the spotlight, no pun intended. But I, I just wanted to say like, yeah, I mean, so many things happen in the world that do happen to individuals, but then also become, the like, real life events do inspire fiction. And I think you can, you can always find a point where you're like, God, that's exactly like a bad thing that happened to me. Again, because hers was so public, it's really sticky. And I do think that they should have responsibly involved her somehow because she was going to get dragged in anyway. My question, and we can put a spoiler alert on this, but like in the movie, did she kill the roommate? Because that I think would affect my feeling on what she's saying. Like if they're, if in this fictionalized world that's inspired by Amanda Knox's story, the inspired fictional Amanda Knox is guilty then I think it adds a lot of weight to what Amanda Knox is, Amanda Knox's argument, you know? Um, without answering to spoil for you guys and for anybody else, I would say that it doesn't paint that figure in, in a purely positive light, which may make an unfair, like, that's not me, but it's so close to me that now you've got people thinking that it's me and it's going to remind them all that I didn't actually do this bad thing. So yeah, in that sense, she absolutely has a point. It's going to, it's, the character is really not her, but it's close enough that she will come under heat again because people will say like, oh, so that's what happened? To be like, no, that's totally. not what happened. It's yeah. a, first of all, she's, she's gay in the movie. And it's and there's there is a sexuality and a relationship involved, and there is stuff that's personal. And people may come out of it and be like, "Oh, I didn't know that's the way it was with Amanda Knox." It'll be like, "No, actually, that that's not the way it was at all." 
but they're, they're, they might think that. So yeah, she has a point. I mean, there's no question. Yeah, I think what I mean, she's advocating for here is like a right to privacy, essentially, like stop taking my story and turning it into stuff. There are other examples of like, I mean, you could think of like the social network, for example, which is about Mark Zuckerberg, tells his story, was not approved by him. They didn't consult him, but he did build up the Facebook empire. Whereas if this story is like, oh, this person that's based on Amanda Knox actually killed her roommate, it's kind of like, I don't know. It, it's, it's, it's Citizen Kane is the other example, right? Because it's a public life. So Yeah, and is Amanda Knox a public figure? I mean, yes, but for something that she didn't choice. do. Right. Yeah, absolutely not by choice and and something that she would have wanted to avoid. I mean, it's also just one of those things of like, I think about this a lot in terms of marketing. Like, I I totally understand the legal reluctance you're talking about where you're like, oh, I'm writing a movie and it's inspired by all these things. But if I get in touch with some of these people, then are we going to owe them? Like, 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 do we want to get their life rights? All of that kind of stuff. So I understand why sometimes filmmakers are reluctant to get in touch with people because they're like, oh, I'm just going to tell this story in my own way. And and it's not going to be close enough that I need to get those rights. I understand that. But I think the bigger reluctance is that the name keeps coming up in the marketing. Like it's all over the Vanity Fair interview right, and that kind of thing. Right. And yeah, how and much, is, part how of much that, is the name being brought up like officially? That's the thing that I'm kind of not clear out about with this story. Like is the director it, saying her name and stuff like that? In interviews? So it's not on the poster. It's not inspired by the Amanda Knox story. But in, in interviews, he's saying things like, this was really inspired by the Amanda Knox story. And I was thinking about the experience of being in her shoes and the characters around her. And I wonder if that is coming from the marketing department. Like, you know, people get talking points before they go into interviews, right? There are things you're supposed to hit. There's things you're not supposed to hit. And I wonder if marketing is thinking it will be better for the movie, which is admittedly a hard movie to market, right? Like it is yeah. Matt Damon, but it's not taken, right? It's not Liam Neeson, fighting his way through Europe to rescue his daughter. It's like a more, it's a, it's a more complicated movie than that. And so it's a harder thing to market. So like, if I was going to guess anything, I would guess that someone in the marketing department, they've done the math and they know inspired by a true story does better. People like that. And I bet somebody in the marketing department has been encouraging the mentioning of Amanda Knox is my guess. I don't know anything. It's a really good question and it's a really good point. And one thing we talked about when I interviewed him was that people say they they market it as a thriller, which it's also not like there's so many, it, it's clearly like a it's clearly and sadly hard to market a movie that is about adult things in the modern world that has implications to the human experience. Like how do you market what this movie really is? Instead, it looks like it's taken with Matt Damon based totally. kind of on a true story, um, and it's like, there's a mystery being unraveled. It's like none of those things. It's, it's just none of it. It's about, it's, it's about things that are way bigger. And I don't know how you tell, like, I've told so many people have been like, you should see this movie. It's great. Like, it's exactly what movies should be, in my opinion, like drama. And yet, like, you know, all this other stuff. And I think this is this weird place where maybe marketing becomes a stumbling block because, you could be right. I wouldn't be surprised if they're bringing it up as a way to be like, hey, you got to see it. Like, it's like the Monica Lewinsky story. Like, <laughs> you'd be like, wait, this, what? This weekend, I, I went to see Green Knight at the theater. And so I'm in Texas and it was really funny. I was in line and I heard some some good old boys coming out of the theater going, man, they're going to have to make four more James Bournes to make up for that one. So clearly, the <laughs> <laughs> it was hilarious. <laughs> Yeah, but that's so clearly the, thing. the marketing it's like, is kind of you know it's it's a it's a an intricate film to market. I think. Oh yeah, it's not for I I you could that's exactly what I thought during the movie. At one point, I was like, people are going to think they went in to see Jason Bourne, and they're going to be so pissed, like that it's not that, and that's exactly what it was. Yeah. Well, and that's it's got to be really. Fr I mean, I imagine if you're a filmmaker right now and you're like. I mentioned Amanda Knox. If like I don't know Tom McCarthy, I didn't do that interview. But if you're only mentioning Amanda Knox because like they asked you nicely in marketing to try and do that, but it wasn't really the Amanda Knox story to begin with, and a movie being mismarketed is like so cruel to that movie because it gets this bad reputation. I remember about Schmidt, which I really enjoyed, was marketed as a much lighter comedy than it actually yeah. is, <laughs> yeah. and you know it's a dark movie about Schmidt. It is not a light comedy. There's funny moments, but like it totally flopped as a movie. 
because so many people were expecting a lighter movie. And like, you got to market, like, you got to have the balls to market the movie you have. And sometimes that is hard to do, I think. Like, it's also the choice of Matt Damon in that role when Matt Damon at this point is like Jason Bourne and is no longer, you know, goodwill hunting, right? Like, well, and it is also, and it's also really frustrating that, like, apparently, I don't know the Amanda Knox story really well, but from what I've read, both of her parents were super involved. And so, for narrative reasons, I understand why it's harder to make a movie about multiple people than one person, but to be like the single dad fighting for the, you know, the taken but true aspect as opposed to like the more complicated thing of like both parents fighting together for something I think is a frustrating reduction. Yeah. I mean, in that case it was because yeah, they, they say that the mother is dead and the, the father, the Matt Damon character is just a massive like lifelong fuck up. And that's part of what the story is, is, is it's him. It, it, so it's not fair to the parents of Amanda Knox, who probably are not those who are not fuck ups. Like, I mean, he's that's it's a redemption story. And then, but anyway, I, yeah, I don't know the how dead wife, the dead wife redemption arc is like, it should be banned for 10 years. <laughs> like it's just so many movies with the dead wife. It's like, and there's movies I really love where the protagonist has a dead wife, like Inception. Like there are movies where it works, but oh my God, it's, it's just like, we've had enough of the dead wife. I'm sorry that like, that is such an easy thing to make the husband more relatable or whatever, but like, it's, there's too many. I'm just saying it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a movie with a lot going on and there's no way to advertise that except to say to people. This is the guy, like, I mean, I would think you would say, this is the filmmaker behind Spotlight, which is an, uh, an insightful film. And this is a movie that is insightful about experience and life. And, it's, and, and that's something a lot of people are not going to want to go see. And that's just the world we live in. But that's well, yeah, but you can't draw too much attention to Spotlight right now because Marty Baron, one of the heroes in Spotlight, is now like a total mess at the Washington Post. So it is all... Yeah. Like, I mean, it's yeah, like, it's it's tricky. Yeah. It's hard to make movies like this. It's hard to sell them. It's hard to get them made. It's hard to uh, get people in the in the theaters. Most people are not interested, and that's just the reality of the industry. Casting Matt Damon's also double edged sword because you know that's how you get a movie made, but then it also is like how you get people in a theater. But then people in a theater are expecting something different. But then you know, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, I think the Stillwater think- poster does not make me like I do not picture the kind of movie that you're describing George same yeah no they it, didn't, it, it looks uh, like like American Sniper too exactly or I was like just yeah. thinking American yeah. Sniper yeah no they didn't uh they're not really selling the movie that it is it's a very thoughtful and uh, <laughs> like dramatic human piece that movie definitely <laughs> like it really looks like there's at least one sniper rifle in that movie <laughs> it does it, look like I mean also the scene like in tone it's an American abroad who's who's I mean that's the tricky part it, it, yeah yeah no it's it's true um, I mean so Barton, much though, you gotta you gotta at least just send an email to her though like you gotta just be like hey this is coming it's not fully about you but people are probably gonna make some connections and things like that and, and just get get her like politically on your side, you know, just at least give some heads up or something. I don't, I just, I find it hard to believe that that was like something that they felt uncomfortable to do. To me, it sounds like a conscious decision not to contact the person that might be, you know, connected to your movie. Until like eight months later, they're like, oh, hey, would exactly. you want to join us on this podcast? It's a bad look for sure. <laughs> my, my guess, and maybe it's just because I love his other movies so much. My guess is this is a situation that was, that fell on Tom McCarthy very late, long after the movie was made, when marketing was like, hey, in addition to American Sniper, Electric Boogaloo as the poster, can you also talk about Amanda Knox a lot? Like, and you're a filmmaker, you want marketing on your side, you're in these meetings with the marketing department, trying to work with them, hoping they get your movie and know how to sell it, and also having to trust that they're experts, and that they know more about marketing than you do. And so my suspicion is that he is between a rock and a hard place, and started trying to sell it like, because if it's as little based on Amanda Knox as he originally said, then yeah, like, you know, he doesn't actually like, we, people get inspired by news stories all the time and then change it enough and it, it evolves enough. You don't have to get them involved. 
but yeah, at some point when when someone in marketing was like, can you mention Amanda Knox four times in this article? Uh, he probably should have been like, maybe I'll reach out to Amanda Knox. And maybe he did. It sounds like he did at some point. Up next, deep fakes getting people jobs. Um, so, <laughs> I mean, it's a better way to put the headline, right? So, you know, yeah. we've all seen some really great, we've all seen some terrible VFX get improved with deep fakes in posts. If you don't remember what deep fakes are, deep fakes are using a AI neural engine that you can run on like your home PC and you feed it a bunch of imagery and then you use it to create new imagery. Most famously, in my mind, if you've seen the trailers of like Nicolas Cage starring in Rambo, those are made with a deep fake engine, right? And so the technology is now being used quite frequently to fix what people consider bad VFX in movies. So Henry Cavill, the internet's favorite person, had a mustache for some Superman reshoots and and the CGI team went in and cleaned it up, but fans thought it looked weird. And so a guy went in and did a deep fake improvement and it actually looks really great. And then at the end of season two of The Mandalorian, or at the end of the first season of Mandalorian, a character from the original trilogy reappeared. And some fans did not think the CGI was fantastic. And so this deep fake artist went out and used deep fake technology to do actually a little bit better. It's not night and day better. There's still something digital about it that you can sort of tell. But it was good enough that he has now been hired by Lucasfilm, Disney, to work on their projects. So it's a really great, it's a fun story because it's one of those things of like, you know, he did it for free and for fun because he was into it and he was good enough at it that it got attention that got him hired. And it's a good reminder of like, just pursue the stuff you are really passionate in and like have fun with it. And in this scenario, it's really nice that instead of getting sued to oblivion, he got a job off of it. And that's kind of cool. Yeah. One thing that I think is really kind of weird about this one is like, I don't, I mean, I know, a, a, let's say a vague amount of how to do this. And, and like, one thing that I don't really have much knowledge about is how do you be good at it? Like, I, I, it just seems like you kind of feed a bunch of images into, you know, the AI thing or whatever. And, but there are clearly like uh, the corridor crew, they did a whole like three or four, you know, episodes on their channel and a full video on their main channel about doing exactly that. They, they took the Mandalorian thing and, tried to redo it with a deep fake or whatever. And theirs, in my opinion, didn't really turn out a whole lot better than what the original CG was. But clearly this person is so much better at it and it looks, you know, it clearly looks better to my eye. So I, it's, it's just kind of an interesting thing because I don't really know like how you develop that skill set to like, you pick better images to feed the program or, you know, I, I don't really know how all that works, but I'm, I'm very intrigued by that. That's a really weird, interesting question that had never occurred to me because I just figured some people were better at deep faking. Like deep faking is a skill set, <laughs> just like 3D modeling or something. I don't know enough about the tech. Some deep fakes are just so phenomenally good. And and Todd, you're, we're introing you to this podcast, but Charles and I have been talking about them as they've developed and have, and we've talked a lot about how young people out there, like if you want to like de- develop a skill that's going to be in high demand, like deep faking feels like a great thing to get really good at. Like, because have you guys seen, I don't know what they're called, but they do the Tom Cruise ones where most of the videos is a Tom Cruise impersonator and he'll be passing stuff like in front of his face and, and just doing his Tom Cruise thing. And wearing hats and taking them off and it's right. just like seamless or he'll do a stunt. And then the the South Park guys, Matt and Trey did this incredible, what's it called? It's it's about, it's a deep fake. It's all about deep fakes and it's got tons of celebrity impersonators and great deep fakes in it. And it's hilarious. I think. But, but like, that's kind of what I'm talking about though. Like, like, so a, a good deep fake, a big part of it is finding, uh, you know, a original, subject to that looks like the the thing that you're replacing or something like if you're going to do that i mean there's a few different ways to do it but you know to me that's like one of the weirder things where it's just like i i don't know how how someone can be so much better at deep faking than someone else it's a software that you install on a computer that has the engine that runs in the software and you, then you feed things into it. So like in the case of like the Tom Cruise thing, the Matt Stone thing, it's like the skill comes in and like casting the right impersonator and blocking them to do stuff. But like in the Mandalorian example, where you've got the same source footage and one crew is able to do a cooler deep fake than another crew, like what is it that makes your deep fake? Do you have a better neural engine? 
because a lot of these neural engines, like you can go on Reddit and you can download them and you can run them on your thing. So like, is it a better neural engine or, and I don't know, like Todd, this is a great question. I love this question because I hadn't even really thought about what made you good at deepfakes either. Like it's a great thought. My suspicion is that from what I've read about deepfakes, it's all about how you train your engine, right? It's all about like the things you you feed feed into into it. Yeah. So I imagine that the people who are really good at it spend enough time like iterating with what they feed it that the algorithm gets better and better. So I imagine that what you're actually doing is you're going in and picking better source images and actually my guess is color correcting and matching those source images. Yeah, compositing, yeah. Yeah, so that you've got like a set of source images that are already in like the right color space and the right mood. Because like, for instance, when I think about the Nick Cage and Rambo one, one of the things I remember not matching about the Nick Cage and Rambo is most modern footage, the faces aren't quite as saturated and the brightness is a little brighter. And so the face of Nick Cage as Rambo is a little brighter and a little less saturated than the rest of the footage. And I'm, and I and I was like, oh, I wonder if you went in and you did that to the footage before you stuck it in the engine. Mm. It would come out the other side matching a little better. Really good point. Do you yeah. guys remember seeing... So I have two points about this. One, do you guys remember seeing when people deep faked Harrison Ford into the Han Solo movie? Oh, yeah, yeah. And it didn't look great. <laughs> like, nobody would have thought watching that, no offense to whoever did it. Just, you know, <laughs> but, like, nobody would have watched that and been like, Oh, they should totally like they've he's he made them look bad. Like he actually it actually kind of made the point and was like, yeah, you really you can't you can't do that. It doesn't work. The thing about the 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 Luke one is that so Mark Hamill was there. Um he provided the source. Mark Hamill performed the role on set and they brought in so here's what I understand about the production Mandalorian and Lucasfilm are famously kind of tight-lipped about a lot of what they do, but there have been released some but photos of him on set in the costume. So he was there performing it, which gives you a pretty good, you know, it's the actual same head body. And then they had a double, a guy played him young. And and I think that provided the face and he does look kind of like him, but I think that what, here's what I'm guessing. I think what the deep faker did is he was like, I'm not going to use the footage of the young guy who's like a, kind of a Mark Hamill, young Mark Hamill double. I'm going to use Mark Hamill young. <laughs> I'm just going to use young Mark Hamill because yeah. I think the difference between what they put on TV and what the deep fake was, was, oh, it really is. Like there was something, it, it still looked a little digital, but there was something about the episode where you were like, yeah, that's not really him. Like it doesn't really, it looks kind of like him, but it's not really him. But once they did the other one, you were like, oh yeah, that's him. That's yeah. his face. It's digitally there, but that's his face. So I don't know where they land in terms of rights to their images. I think knowing George Lucas, they probably have them forever. Like they can probably put Harrison Ford in everything anytime they want. <laughs> but I do suspect that that was kind of the, that's what I get. That's my guess. But none of, nobody... Nobody who's fixing these has access to the source footage, right? Like Disney's not out there. I once did a film pitch where my pitch was going to be, I was going to put all of the dailies on a website online so people could cut them however they wanted because like fan recuts are really fun. But Disney's not doing that. There's no website I can go to like mandalorian.dailies to get all of that source footage. So these deep fakers are taking the results of the CGI and then using deep fake to improve it, right? They're not going out and getting the original dailies. Are they? I don't think they are. I, I, I imagine it's just rips off of YouTube, honestly. I mean, it's yeah. probably nothing more complicated than that. Yeah. So it is a little bit cheating because they're basically saying, okay, we have the shot that you already did $30,000 worth of VFX on, and I'm going to put my deepfake engine on it and see if I can make it 4% better, which isn't the same as saying I'm taking your raw dailies with this dude who's not Mark Hamill, and I'm going to deepfake it to be young Mark Hamill. There is a difference there between the two. Yeah, for sure. But it's it's also that, I don't know, when you, I think, you know, it's like with anything, if you can use an organic real thing instead of a a fully CG created asset, like I I think that the the Mark Hamill face was in the, the actual original version, you know, it's anytime you can feed some actual real things into an effect, it's always going to look better. And I think it's just like, you know, removing that that layer of uncanny valley that, you know, is just so hard to get rid of, which was definitely present in the original version. 
So I don't know. But yeah, it, it's, de- it's definitely tracked really well. It's definitely composited really well. I, I'm not surprised he got the gig. I'm curious. You guys tell me what you think about this thought. I wonder if, from my perspective, there was such a reaction to the deep fake. This happened, do you remember, with the Irishman? They shot it. A lot of us saw it. We're like, oof, it's weird. Like it doesn't, it's very uncanny valley. And then people deep faked some stuff on the internet later. And it was like, man, how did we ran a story on No Film School that did really well, where it was like, look, this guy on YouTube did a better job that's more believable than <laughs> the entire movie. And it was like, man, it's like egg on their face, right? Part of me wonders if Lucasfilm saw that this happened and they were like, it was almost like a PR move of just like, okay, yeah, we want to make it clear that we're front of the line and we're going to get better and like we see that too. And we're not just saying like, no, our, our not as good version. I mean, I don't know if that's how any any of these massive companies' minds works, but it, it does feel like it's kind of like, man, some guy at home did a better job than you. Like that's all I could think after The Irishman. I was like, I can't believe like all the money they spent and all the time that goes into it and someone deep faked it at home and I find it far more watchable. Um, yeah, and and that happened again with Mandalorian, where it's just like, man, that's like, get it together, guys. Yeah, take that, all you armchair quarterbacks. <laughs> we'll we'll you know yeah come come do it for for real, and and we'll see we'll see if it's better. But you know that's also just kind of a sign of how how fast everything's moving. I mean, some like team of like probably twenty people worked on Mark Hamill's face for like you know two three months, and then some guy just. You know, while he was playing Warzone in the background, you know, ran a simulation <laughs> thing with a, you know, it's it's just pretty crazy how fast everything's moving right now. Yeah, I mean, and I can't wait until these tools just sort of roll into other tools. We're already at the point now where neural-driven tools are starting to show up in some of the products we're about to talk about in tech news. <laughs> oh yeah, what a transition that was. So nice. two two. Two tech news stories this week, Blackmagic and Adobe. Let's talk about Adobe first. So Adobe, which all of their neural engine stuff is under the name Sense AI or Sensei. Sensei. I don't know how. Sensei. Sensei. I'm supposed to say it's Sensei. I think so. Um, I've never never said it aloud. And so they just rolled out for Premiere, something that's been available from a few different plugins for a while, but not all of the plugins have worked seamlessly, but a a, a feature set in Premiere that is really cool, which is just automatically generated text-to-speech using sort of AI neural engine technology. So you bring in your footage and it generates a transcription from all of the text that is fully searchable. So if this doesn't immediately get really exciting for you, it should get really exciting for you because like if you're working on a documentary, one of the tasks that an assistant editor frequently does, like let's say you're working on a documentary interviewing all these 70s political figures about politics and stuff and you talk about all sorts of stuff, you can now search for every time anybody in any of your interviews says the word Watergate and make a bin of all the times people talk about Watergate, which is usually something that like an assistant editor is doing is they're breaking down the interviews, all the stuff about Watergate, all the stuff about Jimmy Carter, all the stuff about, you know, uh, salt one and salt two or um, whip inflation. Now they're making bins, but now with search text to speech, does it, you can just search for it and then watch through all the times they talk about something automatically. It's going to make, it is definitely something that's that's a big change for editorial. And it's coming out of watching some of this technology get integrated. There were a few good plugins for this. Digital Anarchy has had one for a while that people really liked, and there's a couple. But watching it get integrated directly into Premiere is super cool. Yeah, and it's, I mean, it, it works really good. It's it's like very accurate. Um, the Sensei thing works really, really well. And I mean, you can like export, you know, a JSON file or whatever. So you can send it to your, you know, producer, whoever, and, and you know, build the story with text and whatnot. And I think probably the, for me, the cooler aspect of that whole thing is now there's like this little button you can hit and it'll just create on-screen captions for every time someone's talking. So you can make, you know, auto captioning really, really fast. It's all customizable, all that sort of stuff. It's, yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty powerful. Oh, and also with the JSON, I haven't actually done this, but theoretically, you know, because you can feed JSON files into After Effects animations for on-screen graphic displays. Mm-hmm. So you could pop out that JSON. And so if somebody's listing like 45% this, 70% this, that text can then feed into an After Effects template for even more sophisticated titling. Or you so could just create a caption and then send that to After Effects, uh, which is, and yeah, you can, there's a lot of really powerful, crazy stuff you can do with this new thing. 
Yeah. And it's it's AI rolling into Premiere. So that's yeah. super cool. And then the other bit, thing in tech news is Blackmagic rolled out a whole update to their studio cameras and also to their streaming box. Their streaming box is probably more interesting. So let's talk about studio cameras first. If you haven't shot with the Blackmagic studio cameras, it's probably because you're not doing a lot of live event production, but they're really popular in like the church space. I know we've got some like church filmmakers listening and uh, in the sort of like live cut space, you know, they're usually built around slightly smaller sensors, which give you a bigger depth of field, which is really useful when you're doing a live thing. And it's usually like an operator pulling their own focus. And, but they're also just like incredibly affordable for what they offer. Like these are 4K broadcast cameras for like three grand a piece, which is a crazy good deal. And, you know, a whole host of new features. But then the other thing is their little streaming box, which it's a great little box that is designed to make it really easy to stream video. So it has an SDI input from your camera. So you can take straight out of your camera into that. And then you can use USB to hook it up to your computer if you want. So you can then hook up your SDI camera for Zoom or whatever meetings you are. And I know that seems silly, but like we're filmmakers. Like if I'm doing a pitch over Zoom, I'm going to hook up my nice camera. I use a different tool to do it. But like I hook up my nice camera. I have a nice background. I'm a filmmaker. Image is part of the thing we use. You're doing a pitch. You make it slick. But what's also really neat about their um, streaming box is it has built in as an Ethernet port. So you don't even need a computer. If you have Ethernet, you can literally just plug it in over Ethernet and you can directly attach it to LTE streaming. So you can hook it up to just stream straight over the web from this box, no computer needed. So you're not doing that thing where you're like pairing your phone with a laptop and then plugging that laptop into the computer. It's like literally straight into this box, straight into your cellular network, which makes it a lot easier if you're doing like mobile or field streaming and you want to do it from a fancier system. And I think those are really nice features. It's a dedicated hardware H.264 encoder, which means that it's uh, it's going to be a better quality encode because it's pretty much the only thing the box is dedicated to doing. So if you've ever, you're probably going to get a nicer image out of this than just taking your camera and plugging it straight into your computer because your computer has to do all sorts of other things while also trying to encode your video. Whereas this is taking your video, encoding it properly, and then just sending it out ready to stream already in H.264. So I thought that was pretty slick. So wait, you can you can stream through your phone? Like uh, I don't think it's your phone. I think you have to hook it up to just just a a, a cellular tower, I guess, somewhere. Yeah, like it, you probably need has, to buy. I mean, let's look at it again. You probably need to buy a Are we talking we got to go little, like register this thing with T-Mobile or something? <laughs> like how does, I think you confused. have to what's the little chip thing you put in it? SIM card? SIM card, good lord. Yeah. All right, let's look at the back if it takes a SIM card. Because Teradek makes something where you can put up to four SIM cards in it. And you can... So Teradek has a box for doing this where literally you can get four SIM cards and it'll band them all together. It's way more expensive than the web presenter. The Blackmagic web presenter, looking at their website, you just plug in your phone to it. It has a USB port, you plug your phone straight into it and it will stream straight over your phone. So it's not direct to web like the Teradek unit is. The Teradek unit is super cool, but then you have to pay for four more web subscriptions. So it only makes sense if you're using it like every day. Whereas this, you just plug your phone via USB into the Blackmagic web presenter. It still saves you a laptop. Question, what's the quality of the stream? Like (laughs) if it's going through your phone, like how do we know? There's a lot of times where I switch over. It's 4G or 5G. So if you have 5G, which is still very spotty, but I only have 4G, I have an iPhone 11. And I still am pretty impressed with the amount of data you can stick through 4G. It's pretty robust. Yeah, I mean, I I, I feel like, I mean, Ultra HD going over 4G, I, I mean, that's, I would like to see that. I'm, I'm curious how well that works. I suspect you'll, you'll stream at 1080. You'll take a 4K signal. You'll compress that down to 1080 in yeah. the box. I don't think you'll stream the 4K. Also, frankly, for streaming, 1080 is still going to look great. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, but I don't think you're going to... Yeah, better than most are going to get in this kind of circumstance. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yep, so no SIM card. You heard it here after we read it on the website. Crack reporting (laughs) from your tech host, Charles Hayne. All right, so that's this week on the No Film School podcast. It's been a fun one. Lots of drama stirred up. Let's find out. Uh, I'm looking forward to more news on the Disney lawsuit in the weeks to come. All right, I'm Charles Hayne. You can find me on the internet at charleshayne.com. You can watch on Amazon Prime. My movie, Angel's Perch, my show, Salty Pirate. Watch both. If you like it, give it five stars. If you don't like it, write me an email. And um, (laughs) yeah, see you guys next week. Todd, do you want to plug? 
I don't, I don't necessarily have anything to plug. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm Todd Blankenship. I'm all over YouTube. I have a channel called Am I a Filmmaker? I'm now going to be doing a lot of writing with No Film School and you'll probably see me popping up uh, various places on their YouTube channel as well. So yeah, keep an eye out for me. Yeah, I'm Kath Tolentino, filmmaker, writer, and uh, you can see my work, katherinetolentino.com. My production company on Instagram is at borderwoman.pictures. I also program for Salute Your Shorts Film Festival, which is coming up August 20th to the 22nd in LA. So check us out. Follow us on Instagram. We've got a lot of great shorts lined up this year. Uh, and I'm George Edelman, Editor-in-Chief of No Film School. You can find everything we talked about today and more at nofilmschool.com. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter. Definitely check out our YouTube channel. There's more stuff. There's a great Wheelie Boys video that Todd and Charles collaborated on that I think is one of the better things we've put up on YouTube. So we're going to be doing more of that in the future. Also, we talked about Stillwater. I plugged it, but listen to the podcast interview with Todd McCarthy. Uh, sorry, Tom McCarthy. <laughs> I was like, wait, <laughs> I wasn't there. What? <laughs> I'm thinking about Todd Blankenship and Tom McCarthy <laughs> and combining them into one person. Yeah. Uh, so check out that podcast. Check out M. Night Shyamalan, who we talked to about old. Talk to the producers of Jungle Cruise. We'll have that next week. because That's always interesting to talk to people who make a movie that scale. And thanks so much for listening.